So good morning. We're going to be reading from Mark 13, verse 1. So Mark 13, verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that they are all about you fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flocked in the synagogues. On account of you, on account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witness to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what you say. Just say whatever is giving you at that time, for it is not you, uh, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will be betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the, only, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be the days of distress, unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four wings, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it's near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It is like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the, the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, uh, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the roaster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. This is the word of the Lord. I want to start today by asking you guys if you've heard of the word woke or wokeness before. Yes. All right. Looks like almost all, all the youngsters have heard of this word. It's a fairly new buzzword. And um, even if you haven't heard of it before, I'm sure you've come across the concept of being woke. This word started as something that meant recognizing racial discrimination and all, all, all of those things. Uh, this especially started in America, but uh, now this word has come to mean recognizing all sorts of discrimination, be it racial, be it uh, religious, be it uh, due to sexual orientation. And uh, we see this concept everywhere and we can, we can see it in advertisements, we can see it in movies, even children's movies. We can see it in the books, we can see it in cartoons. And they have this idea of representing and accepting all sorts of people. And the bottom line is this, wake up. There are many truths out there. You don't have a monopoly on truth, hence, hence wokeness. They want us to be tolerant, they want us to be inclusive, and they want us to be non-judgmental. Society wants us to wake up and realize that there are many truths out there, not just one, and that we ought to respect the truths of others. In today's passage, which we, which we heard read by Denner, uh, we, we saw Jesus repeat a command several times. Uh, I counted and it was seven. Uh, was, Be on guard, stay awake. Now you might have added in a different translation, watch, be aware. Be on guard, stay awake. Jesus repeats this for a total of seven times. It is therefore very important for Jesus that his disciples stay awake. Uh, not just the 12 that were there at that time, but also us today. The wake-up call from society, it can be dis discarded, disregarded. And uh, in fact, in many situations, it must be discarded. But Jesus' wake-up call is of supreme importance. So why do I say that? Well, if you try to stay awake and listen for the next 30 to 40 minutes, I will try to answer that question. And uh, today, especially, we've lost one hour of sleep, so you have to try hard. <laughs> but before we dive in, let me give you a quick recap. We've, as Andre said, we've been looking through the Gospel of Mark, and Mark has, to, has been talking about the kingdom of God. That's how he began his gospel account. And he has been showing Jesus to us as God's promised king who will, who will be the king of this kingdom, God's kingdom. And last week, uh, Andres was preaching, we saw Jesus come into Jerusalem as the king, as that promised king. But what he did right away was 
quite unexpected. The overarching theme that we saw in Jesus' actions last week was that of judgment. It was a fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3. I'll read a couple of verses from there. The Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? So last week, when we saw in, in chapter 11 and 12, when Jesus came to the temple, the first thing he did was he chased out the people who were making it a marketplace. He judged them. He judged a fig tree for lacking fruit. He also taught about judgment while he was in the temple courts. So today, what is happening? Uh, it's a direct continuation. And now Jesus is leaving the temple grounds. Jesus and his disciples, they leave the place. And as they're leaving, one of the disciples says, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And this was indeed the case. The temple was a grand building. And um, the one that Solomon built, the one that was rebuilt, was also great. And uh, Herod the Great, uh, he expanded the site further. He made it... Uh, much, much bigger and better. The entire Temple Mount was an astounding 140,000 meters square. After the disciple says this, makes this exclamation, Jesus gives a truly unexpected reply. Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And this was a startling thing to say. And I'm sure the disciples were taken aback. And so we see when they reach the Mount of Olives, the disciples ask when all this would happen. Here, Jesus gives them an answer to their question. Okay, I'll just leave it. So yeah, we've got Jesus' answer today. That's what we'll be looking at. But before we look into Jesus' answer, that's fine. Thank you, that would be good. Before we look in, that, that had to be adjusted. But before we look in, on a, on a serious note, we, I think it's good that we look into the question. What did, what did Peter, James, John, and Andrew have in mind when they asked this question? When will these things take place? I think that will help us understand what Jesus wants to clarify to them. So a bit more of a recap. In chapter 8, we saw Peter correctly identify Jesus as the Christ. But immediately after, he was unable to accept that Jesus must suffer and die. In chapter 9, Peter, James, and John saw Jesus in his glory at the transfiguration. And they heard God the Father say, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Immediately after, Jesus predicts his death. And again, they don't understand what he meant. And they fight over who is greatest. In chapter 10, verses 35 to 45, James and John ask Jesus for positions of authority, positions of greatness in his kingdom. And their request causes an argument among the disciples again. So the disciples thought Jesus came to establish a kingdom for the Israelites by overthrowing Rome. But Jesus came to establish God's kingdom by overthrowing sin and death. The disciples thought of an immediate worldly glory. But Jesus' teaching was about suffering now and a future glory. Now, after Jesus' statement about the temple's destruction, they seem to get a glimpse that this victory and glory are not going to be immediate. 
but it's not going to happen now. That is why they're now asking when all this would happen. So Jesus' answer deals with their lack of understanding. I want you to keep this in mind as we look at Jesus' answer. His primary concern with the disciples is to tell them that the kingdom is going to come. He will come triumphantly, but not now. And in the meanwhile, they have to be watchful. So let's, let's look at Jesus' answer. One of the first things Jesus says is in verses 7 to 8. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. I suppose everyone's been watching the news. And if we were playing Apocalypse Bingo, we only need famines and bingo. Does this mean the end is here? When there's a notable famine somewhere, can we expect Jesus to return? Jesus clearly says these things will happen, but the end is not yet. These are the beginning of birth pains. So why is there so much similarity to what we read in the newspapers? Because we live in the last days. In the previous verses, Jesus warns of people who come in his name saying, I am he. People will claim they are the Christ. And he says many will be led astray. We see that today as well. Paganism is on the rise. All these weird Christian cults and sects. They're all gathering pace. And many are led astray by false saviors. Uh, in fact, I was, I was looking into the number of people who claim to be Christ. Uh, specifically Jesus Christ uh, and, and there were quite a few and weird stories and we also know that many people have claimed to be the Jewish Messiah and uh, there are many Jews today who, who think there, there are some Messiahs who have resurrected even in these days Jesus says they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. All of this happened to the disciples. In fact, this was most of their life after the day of Pentecost until they were put to death for preaching the gospel. Not long ago, the Soviet Union asked children at school if they prayed or read the Bible at home forcing them to betray their parents and proceeded to persecute them. There are countries today where possessing a Bible or preaching the gospel is illegal. There are countries today that control what the church preaches. In, in all of this, Jesus' command is this, be on your guard. You will be persecuted and hated for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So we have to ask ourselves, do we live as if it was the last days? Are we ready to endure shame, mockery, jailing, and even death for the sake of the gospel? If the disciples almost 2,000 years ago had that sense of urgency because they saw the false teachers, the antichrists, the persecution, and the signs, how much more should we be vigilant today? Do we in our daily prayers really pray, your kingdom come? Do we earnestly seek it? Or are we saying in our hearts, 
well, it's been 2,000 years and Jesus has been a no-show. I don't think he'll be coming in my lifetime. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. John, all, that, all those years back, said it was the last hour. Jesus' answer becomes much more specific in what he says next from verse 14 onwards. But here's a passage that many Christians interpret many different ways. Uh, do keep that in mind, but let's look at it. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now the abomination of desolation something we read about in the book of Daniel, in, in his prophecy. Uh, there are two words here, abomination and desolation. Abomination is something that is spiritually disgusting, something blasphemous. Desolation is a fairly simple word. Uh, it could mean destruction or laying waste. Uh, you will often see that this is translated the abomination that causes desolation. Another clue that we have is the statement, where he ought not to be. And here the clue is, it's, it's he, not simply it. We can read about a ruler some 200 years before Christ, Antiochus IV. And he built an altar to Zeus on top of the existing altar in, in the temple. And then he proceeded to sacrifice a pig on top of it. Now most of you know that Jewish people are kosher and they don't eat pork. So this was an abomination of desolation. The Jewish people considered it an abomination of desolation. This ruler, Antiochus IV, he named himself Epiphanes, which means God manifest or God in the flesh. If you ask me, that is quite blasphemous. And he was most definitively a type of the Antichrist, the abomination of desolation that Daniel prophesied about. Jesus is saying something similar and someone similar will be coming again. The only question we, that we have is who was it or who is it or who will it be? And my question is in, in all three tenses because um, biblical prophecy works like this. It has multiple layers to it. Uh, I remember uh, Malcolm, some of you know him, uh, he used to give this example for biblical prophecy. Uh, it's like a range of mountains. If you see it from one side, all you see is one mountain. Once you get over it, you can see there are more mountains afterward. So until you get over the first one, in your perspective, it's just one mountain. So prophecy is often like that. You read it and you're expecting one future event, but you get over it, you see, okay, there's going to be another one similar. This is not a perfect fulfillment. Uh, I gave you the example from Malachi chapter 3. Um, if you read the passage, you can understand that it's partially fulfilled when Jesus comes to the temple and he judges the people there. But you can also see that it's not fully fulfilled in that one specific event because the world hasn't been judged yet. So when we read Jesus' statement here, we need to keep that in mind. The question he answers is firstly and primarily about the destruction of the temple. But it is also for a later time. 
At the time of the disciples, the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed. This happened in 70 AD. Rome laid siege to Jerusalem and hundreds of thousands of Jews were killed. Some estimates are about 1.1 million Jews were killed. These events are very well documented by Josephus, who's a Jewish historian who was working in, in, for the Romans. The temple was desecrated in various ways prior to its complete destruction in 70 AD. The Zealots were a group that wanted to throw out Rome and reestablish Israel. They took over the temple and they appointed their own high priest. Now, that might be an abomination of desolation. Uh, at this period where, where the, jealous, uh, the, the zealots were in control of the temple, even murders were happening inside the temple. Later on, Rome would march into the temple, put their idols and their standards in there. That could be seen as an abomination of desolation. And finally, the destruction of the temple itself could be seen as the abomination of des desolation. After all, it was, as Jesus said, every stone was removed, it was burnt to the ground. Uh, it was burnt specifically to get all the gold out of it. And that, that event conclusively put an end to sacrifices. And it completely changed the Jewish religion. However, I want you to take a look at verses 24 to 27. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great glory, great power and glory. I think we can all agree that that hasn't happened yet. There will be a future greater and perfect fulfillment of these words of God. God poured out his judgment on Jerusalem before with their exile to Babylon. This happened around 550 BC. God poured out his judgment on Jerusalem in 70 AD for rejecting Christ. Jesus' words here are indicative of a larger scale of judgment, hence the cosmic language about the sun not shining and the moon not giving its light. In this judgment, not only Jerusalem, but all the world will be judged for its rebellion against God and for rejecting Christ. So to summarize, the disciples asked, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus' answer tells them, in fact, it reminds them that glory is not going to be immediate, but there's going to be a time of intense persecution, suffering, deception, and even apostasy within the church, and that God's people will have to endure that before the kingdom of God is fully established. At this time, Jesus asked the disciples and us, the readers, to be on guard, to keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. So we still need to ask one last question. What does it mean to be on your guard? What does it mean to be awake? I thought it might be useful to first discuss what it would be like to sleep and not be on our guard. Let me give you a small illustration. As many of you know, I'm a, I'm a new dad, barely four months in. And uh, a month or a month and a half ago, Magdalene woke me up around 2 or 3 a.m. Well, that's my wife, for those of you who don't know me. 
And she asked me, can you change Michael's diaper? That's my son, by the way. <laughs> and I said, here's what I said. I'm not joking. Not in the middle of the night. <laughs> and I said it, and I said it with that exact tone. <laughs> and I know this only because Magdalene told me later. I wasn't completely aware. I have a very vague memory of this. Here, here are the facts. I wasn't completely awake. I was deep in sleep and nothing in my brain had turned on. And I wasn't able to understand what was happening or, and I wasn't able to make the right decision. So that's exactly what it means to not be on your guard. It means to turn off your faculties for critical and biblical thinking. So practically speaking, what does this look like? For the unbeliever, for those who belong to other religions, for those who are not sure about God's existence, for such people sleeping is not considering the serious message of God's impending judgment of Christ's imminent return, the reality of eternal life and eternal death, despite the vast amount of evidence that we have. Sleeping is being ignorant of these facts. And I think the same applies to those who are culturally Christians, born in a Christian country or Christian family and just going with, with the flow of life, not taking this message of judgment seriously. Jesus clearly prophesied two things, the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the final judgment of God. If one was predicted rightly to the last detail, what makes you think the other will not happen? If you have not considered the message of Christ and the good news of salvation by grace, I plead with you to do so today. If the message of God's righteous judgment on all sinners gives you a sense of desperation, don't shake it away. Talk to one of the elders or our pastor Andis, because it is truly terrifying to fall into the hands of the holy God as an unholy sinner. So how about for the Christian? Jesus says here, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And this is true now. Our adversary has filled the world with all sorts of deceptive things that will pull you away from the truth to make you drop your guard and to call something else your Lord and Savior. There are movies, TV shows, cartoons, anything you watch on the internet. They all have a message that isn't always in line with the biblical message. And they don't even hide it. Social media influencers, they want to influence you. They've got an agenda and this agenda is not always biblical. We've got messages such as this. Listen to your heart. You be you. You deserve it. Be your authentic self. These are the things that we hear today. And you've got to be careful even with so-called Christian media. Lots of songs, Christian songs written today. Man is the center. And Jesus is merely a soothing idea. He's, he's this, just an idea that gives you some comfort. There are many twisted doctrines today. Uh, people have taken many verses out of context, twisted them. One, of, one, one example that comes to my mind is the verse, God is love. And people are squirmish to talk about God's judgment. 
Christians are squirmish to talk about God's judgment. And today's philosophy is secular humanism. It emphasizes man, man's potential, his potential to be good, to be moral, to be purposeful and free without God. And it is even taking over the biblical view of man as depraved and dead in sin and having no hope without God. And this is happening even in churches. So then does staying awake mean avoiding every, every movie, every video, every, every type of social media, becoming a hermit, secluding yourself from the world? Maybe it is avoiding movies that have that one gay character for social brownie points. I think staying awake is rather assessing everything that you hear and everything that you see, holding it against the light of the gospel, against the revealed word of God, to see if it says the truth or if it is a distortion and perversion of the truth. But there's another far more dangerous sleep that Christians might experience. Let me give you another illustration. Those of you who drive a car regularly might have experienced this. When you drive, when you're tired and you drive or you drive for very long periods, you can get sleepy. And there's this zone where you don't know if you're sleeping or if you're still aware. It can also happen with when you're studying or maybe when you're listening to the sermon. <laughs> it, well, with studying, it does happen to me, I have to be honest. Something similar happens to Christians who don't go back to the gospel every day. You gain a sort of self-confidence in yourself. You've got your Christian routine going on. You do your daily Bible reading, you do your daily prayers, you attend a Bible study or maybe even two during the week, and you think you're doing great until you realize your Christian life is just another box in your life called spiritual goals, just like career goals, family goals, fitness goals, and so on. Am I saying such a routine or habit is useless or bad? Absolutely not. Very good if you do that. However, being vigilant is knowing that this, li this lifestyle is not your means of salvation. In fact, it is realizing that you are falling short countless number, countless number of times at your workplace, at your university, at home, despite these routines. Every moment we need to remind ourselves that we live in the last days and Christ's return is near, denying ourselves and waging war against sin every day consciously. Being awake is knowing your priority is Christ and the glory of God. So Christian, you have to ask yourself today, is your priority something else? Do you eagerly desire your time studying the Bible or praying, or is it just a duty that you think you need to fulfill because you're a Christian? How do you spend your leisure, taking in mindless entertainment that isn't really mindless, or trying to read a book in the Bible that you haven't read before, or trying to study a book that you haven't studied before? Being awake in the Christian sense has nothing to do with being woke and tolerant of everyone. Neither is it about calculating and knowing exactly when Christ is going to return. It is not a cheap thrill of following politics, advances in science, in astrology, or some cosmic phenomena, and building an elaborate theory about Christ's 
second coming. Being awake, on the other hand, has everything to do with prioritizing God. It has everything to do with being immersed in the word of God, so as to guard yourself from deception, false gospels and false saviors. It has everything to do with enduring in the faith, despite mockery and persecution, and eagerly waiting for Christ's return, and living every day in the light of Jesus' imminent arrival. Before I finish, I want to give all the Christians here some assurance, an assurance that Jesus gives in this passage. We have been hearing this for the past few weeks, but I want to remind you again. This being awake and vigilant is difficult, even impossible. Think about it. If our priority is supposed to be God, it's supposed to be God 100% of the time. And I am sure none of us here can with a straight face say, I have prioritized God every second of my life ever since I became a Christian. We cannot make such a claim. We are selfish because we are still humans. We are still selfish, sinful beings. We are still in the flesh. We haven't been resurrected into our bodies of glory yet. Another impossibility is also holding against deception. Some might think it is easy, but it's not because what Jesus says is these false prophets, they will perform signs and wonders, not just sweet talk you into deception. And if we look at the sheer number and volume of apostates and heretics, those who have rejected the faith, it is very clear that being deceived is far more easier than being vigilant. I want to assure you though that with God being awake is possible. I want to assure you that God is concerned for the salvation of Christians, for his people. In fact, if not for his concern, not a single person would be saved. You can quickly take a look at verse 20. If God gave his son Jesus Christ for you, who took on himself your sin and died in your place, and if you believe that, you should also believe that he will protect you. So take in this truth and live in this truth. Be awake and be on your guard, for this is the last hour. Let us pray. Loving Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Um, and uh, Jesus, we thank you for your word of warning. We thank you for informing us beforehand of all these things that are to take place. And uh, Lord, we thank you that your word is truth. And we thank you that your word is powerful at all times. And that your word remains forever. Give us today this sense of assurance that you protect us. But help us also to be on our guard and to be vigilant. Father, we ask that you sanctify us in the truth. Your word alone is truth. Protect us in it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.